followers of Christ um, in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, we have got in our series on the gift of life, uh, the gift of life in Christ, we're getting towards the end. We had a couple of weeks looking at what it means to be free. Praise God, we're freed by what Christ did at the cross. Uh, In particular, freed from sin and its many negative consequences. We had a good look at that. We looked at how we have a fresh start in Christ as well because of what he's done for us. We had a look at what it is to be friends with God and how we don't have to stand at a distance, as Andy read from the scriptures this morning, I think it was from Colossians 1, about how we are able to approach God with confidence. Whereas once there was so much of our own uh, sinfulness that stood in the way, now intimate friendship with God is uh, available to us. And as we've gone through these different things, there have been different leaflets, all looking a little bit like this one, appearing week on week with a little bit of teaching and some passages of the Bible to look at and reflect on. Um, you should have got one of these as well this morning. This is number six, and it's the last in a series of six. So they've been coming out to accompany the teaching on Sunday since the new year. If you've got some and not others, there are now some complete, now that we've got to the end and we've got six of them, there are some complete sets just by the welcome desk uh, to the left of these glass doors here as you go out. Feel free to grab a set. They're stuck together with paper clips and you can uh, take hold of those and I trust get good value from them and continue to reflect on what it is that Christ's done for us at the cross. The other thing that you've got is one that looks like that. I tried... If it, if it looks a bit garish, blame me. Uh, I designed this. I can't blame anyone else for that. Um, this is just giving you a heads up on what will be happening uh, in a couple of weeks' time. In the run-up to Easter, we're going to be focusing further practically on how we can enjoy all of the goodness that Christ has made available to us. And on the back where it says three helps, there are some things that we're suggesting there that you might want, you would benefit from doing a little bit of preparation of saying, are there any of those helps that would be good for you personally to take hold of as we go into that series? And the book at the top, The Life You've Always Wanted, we have copies uh, that you can get hold of from the welcome desk here. I'm not sure quite how much we're selling them for, but you can get hold of them there. The other ones you'd need to get hold of yourself. And so that's to give you a heads up for a couple of weeks' time. Is that all clear enough? I'm now at great risk of looking at the tops of people's heads for the next 10 minutes as everybody reads the many great leaflets that we've handed out this morning. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll pray, and then if you've got your head down for a bit, I can believe that you're joining with me in prayer. How about that? (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to the cross and raising him from the grave. And it's a wonderful story that we'll never, ever exhaust. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, that we might see more of the wonder of what you've done for us, more of the riches of life that you've made available to us, that we could take hold of them with both hands and live the abundant life that you desire us to have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, it may help you resist the temptation to look at those bits of paper if you put them under your desk or somewhere else. Desk? Desk? Chair. Chair. 
Where did that come from? Okay. Oh, so this morning, um, let's just pause for a moment and, uh, and think about who this good news is for. We've looked at being set free, made fresh, and friendship. And uh, the truth is that some people do feel bound. And some people are looking for a fresh start. And some people are lonely. And we've looked at how all of those things truly have their root in sin and how the cross of Christ deals with that and is therefore good news. Uh, The truth is also that not everyone feels those things. Not everybody feels bound. Not everybody feels lonely. In fact, if we were to ask for a moment, what kind of society do we live in? What is it that the people around us commonly complain about? What is it that people commonly feel a need for? Then we might recognize that we live in a materialistic society. That is one in which we're absorbed by the physical things around us. And actually, most people are not really looking for anything spiritual but are expecting to find all they need in the material world. Maybe a new gadget will make life better. We also live in what we could call a pluralist society. It's maybe a slightly more technical word, but it means that there's loads of different ways of making sense of the world that are presented to us. And most people are overwhelmed by the amount of information that comes their way, the number of choices that are put before them, and most people are not expecting to hear a coherent story that will make sense of life. They're not expecting anybody to turn up with a story that's going to revolutionize the whole of what life is about. And of course, We also live in a cynical society, unable to believe in genuine change. On hearing what's going on in Egypt in the last couple of weeks, where, again, there's a strong military man rising, and the people are looking ahead to a a future that was maybe not going to be very different to how things were before the Arab Spring. Most people in this country today say, well, there you go, that's just how it is, isn't it? There's not any, well, there's not very much hope for real change. There is a cynicism about genuine change. And if we're honest, some of those things we could see in our own lives. Materialism, looking for answers in the physical stuff. Pluralism, just a bit confused about quite what's right and maybe giving up on finding the right answers and cynicism, unbelief, not expecting genuine change. So what's great about this morning is that this last aspect of the gift of life that we're going to look at, following Jesus, is going to speak right into those things, and it's going to give us a completely different perspective on them. So I hope you're ready for that. It is really quite revolutionary what Jesus has to say. So let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 8, where Jesus speaks about the death that he will suffer. Mark chapter 8, 
verse 31 is where I'm going to start to read. Okay. Jesus began to teach them, that is, his disciples, that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or... What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. (laughs) Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that this doesn't really sound like good news. It doesn't feel like one of the more good newsy passages in the Gospels. Um, We tend to receive those first three aspects of what Jesus has done for us. Freedom, a fresh start, friendship, they all sound like good news. But when we come to the call to follow Jesus, it can make our hearts sink just a little bit. In his classic book on discipleship, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, a woman as well, for that matter, he bids her come and die. You think, well, that sucks. Well, evidently, that was pretty much what Peter thought too. Verse 32 here, he protests, he rebukes Jesus, he doesn't accept this version of events. And uh, for many of us, there is a fault line in our thinking. And it goes a bit like this, because Jesus died on the cross for us, he's nice. Because Jesus calls calls us to take up our cross, He's harsh. So it's nice to become a Christian, but harsh to remain one. I don't know if that rings any bells for you. 
there can be a fault line in our thinking, hang on a second, this seems like two different Jesuses. How does that work? He was nice before I got to know him. Now I've got to know him, he's being a bit mean. Of course, it's the same Jesus. And here's the key thing. Jesus went to the cross because he knew how brilliantly things would turn out. That's the key. He went to the cross because he knew how brilliantly things would turn out. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, it says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. It wasn't a mere dutiful thing that had to be done. He knew what would come of it. He knew that his death would release life in abundance to all who would embrace it. For the joy set before him, for the good that he could see would come from it, he went for it. He had a tussle with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane to make sure that this was what was needed. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So why does Jesus invite us to take up our cross and follow him likewise? Well, it's because he knows that when we take up our own cross, things will turn out brilliantly for us too. And that's what he wants for us. He's not being mean. In fact, the invitation to follow Jesus is a gift. Wonderful, wonderful gift. In verse 35 here, it says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's this uh, story that's been in the news this week, hasn't there? I don't know if you've seen this picture and picked up what's happened. There's a couple in uh, Sierra Nevada who bought a property a few years ago, were walking around their property on an area that they called Saddle Ridge. And uh, they'd walked this way a number of times, but this time when they were walking there, sometime last year, they saw a tin in the ground. And when they opened these tins, because there were a number of them, they had mint condition gold coins from the 19th century in them, which turn out to be worth $10 million. It's pretty good, isn't it? Um, They said they're going to use the money to clear their debts, give some to charity, and and all the rest of it. Uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. This is what it's like. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Dallas Willard says this about discipleship. Discipleship is a bargain. It's, a, it's costly, but it's a bargain. You give everything you've got, and you get more back. Give everything you've got, but you get more back. It's a bargain. It's a good investment. So the opportunity to follow Jesus is the invitation to take up the best bargain will ever be offered. And this one's not a con. 
The invitation to follow Jesus is a gift. See, the death that Jesus invites us to die is not an end to life. The death that Jesus invites us to die is an end to sin. That's what he invites us to do. We get to die to all that is evil in us with the result that we overflow with life to others. That's what we're talking about. And so the good news of the gospel, the good news that we've been looking at, it's not just about rescuing us from the mess that we got into, but it's also about our transformation, our transfiguration into being more and more like Jesus. Now, this is how it works practically. I don't know whether you've observed this in your own life and in the lives of other Christians around you, but I have lost count of the number of times where I've known one of God's children, a Christian who's desperately after getting hold of something to make their life better. Often as not, it's a better job because work sucks and really want to see breakthrough in work and I I want this kind of job and I'm going to progress in my career, my life's going to have significance, all that kind of stuff. And they're praying and praying and praying and it just doesn't happen. The doors don't open, they apply for jobs, they're turned down. It doesn't make sense, they're the best qualified person, but even so, it doesn't happen. And then this is the kind of thing that happens. One day they say, oh God, oh well. There you go. If you don't want me to have this job, if I'm just being presumptuous, if it's not your will for me, if you don't want me to have it, I'll let it go. Lord Jesus, whatever you want for my life, that'll do for me. And then in next to no time at all, they've got the best job ever. I don't know whether you've observed that pattern. I've seen it with people who are desperately wanting to have a spouse at the point of eventually letting it go and saying, God, you know, your will for my life, I'll let, let go of it, a desire for a particular kind of community, perhaps, desire to live in a particular place, have a particular kind of ministry. There's this pattern in which dying to things brings about new life for us. Um, I was just thinking about what's gone in my, on in my own life since the new year. And it's not quite on the button a description of this, but I think it illustrates the point. As I said, I'm running this half marathon. Um, approaching the age of 40, I've had to be fairly disciplined about giving myself to training. Otherwise, there's no hope, really. So I've been quite rigorous, and I've had a schedule, and I've followed it. And I've known even that I need to make sure I eat enough and all of that kind of stuff. Now then, we're also trying to move house. We sold our house in four days in November. It's very good. That was good. But since then, there hasn't been any place that we could see that we could move to. And we're making a move across the city for several reasons, but the main one is because we're not living in the part of the city where most of the non-Christian friends that we have live. And that's where we know we should be. So that's why we're moving. And it feels like a little bit of a spiritual battle. And uh, in the new year, I began to sort of realize that this move was going to be contested, it wasn't just going to happen, and that I ought to therefore fast and pray. And then I said to myself, well, I can't do that 
because I'm doing this running schedule training thing. So I, I just put that... I knew the Holy Spirit was talking to me about fasting and praying. I have enough sensitivity to realize that, but just put it on hold and said, well, God, I can't, you, I can't, can't be doing that at this time. So one of the things that I do, I think I may have mentioned it in preaching before, is every fortnight I participate in an accountability group where I'm provoked to ask, what's God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? And somehow it came up in that, you know, what battles are we fighting and so on. I said, I know God's speaking to me about fasting and praying about our house move. I said, but I can't do it. There's a sort of silence around the Skype call. So God said it, but you can't do it. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? And I realized that what was going on in me is approaching 40, um, probably that this half marathon that I run will be, I mean, I'm not likely to run another one in the future, I don't think, faster than this one. I, I tried to run a half marathon five years ago, and I didn't quite make it. I'd injured my knee, um, but I, I also didn't look at the course route properly. And the first 11 miles were flat, and then there were hills, and it did me in. And I had to stop and walk the last. But I came over the finishing line and met John Matthews, whom some of you will know, who's in his 70s, had just three months before had major surgery for some colon cancer and had beaten me across the line. And so, actually, part of what's going on in all of this is a certain amount of pride and ego, and I'm not just training because I want to raise money for this very good cause, but at least that's how it started. But once I'd got started and realized that beating my body into submission was, you know, I could achieve something, the kind of achievement thing kicked in, and it became more about me than about other people. And... The reason that I wouldn't fast was that. So there's a little bit of ugliness of selfishness going on here, which actually is doing my family harm. Because God's spoken about a spiritual breakthrough and a route towards it, and I won't because I'm too narcissistic. Yeah? So anyway, I um, was challenged about that. And the way that this accountability group that I participate in works is we, we meet on Skype again in a fortnight, and I'll be asked what I did. So I set some dates to fast this last week. Bev and I both fasted three days this week. Uh, on the second day of fasting, the house that we looked at that we thought was the only one that could work for us, but that was £20,000 more expensive than we could afford, dropped in price by £20,000. Yeah, so that was quite good. Uh, we went, to, we went to look at it on Thursday. We've put an offer in. We've been told that our offer is probably the, is the strongest offer that's gone in so far. It's not yet a done deal. But there we are. That was simple, wasn't it? Do you know what? And I went out for a training run on my second day of fasting, and it was fine. So there's a dynamic here that God wants in our lives in which we just do what he says and acknowledge when our egos, our, our selfishness gets in the way and resolve to follow him and put him first. And the death to sin in us yields life. Are you with me? He wants us all to enjoy that dynamic. Dallas Willard again, great name, says... Uh, having said discipleship is a bargain, says the cost of non-discipleship is much higher than the cost of discipleship. Make sense? 
It's even more costly not to follow. I mean, this last week, if I'd not followed, I reckon I'd be £20,000 worse off this weekend. Beyond that, these were the words of Jesus that we read. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Ouch. I'm sure that's not a price worth paying. It's interesting to note in verse 34 in this chapter that the call to follow and take up the cross is not only given to the disciples, but to the crowds. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And then he said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And I believe that this is, a, this is an important thing for us to note because there are some people around us who don't feel bound, who aren't lonely, who don't feel the need for a fresh start, but for whom the call to follow Jesus, to live an entirely, a life in an entirely different dynamic will prove compelling. Not motivated to come to Christ because of known needs that they have, but catching a vision of a different way of life. This is part of the good news, not only within the church, but that should sound out from the church too. So, here we go. Let's apply this. I hope you can see that picture. It's a load of people and all their different things. Um, This gift of life, this gift of following Jesus, is a gift for confused pluralists. Where there are so many different ways of looking at life, many people cannot see the wood for the trees. And it's not so much that, I mean, I don't know if you've met anybody who's claimed to have investigated all the different religions in the world and discovered through careful observation that they all lead to God. I've never met anyone like that. I've met a lot of people who've said, there's just too much going on here. I give up. I can't see my way through it. The only viable option is to judge them either as all good or all bad. So the atheists take the option of saying God is not good and judge the whole lot as bad. Many more people take the opposite thing and say, well, if it's good for you, then fine. They're all good enough. It's a despair at ever getting to something that we could call the truth. It leaves people confused confused pluralists, confused, and sometimes saying quite silly things. I remember a few years ago watching a TV documentary, maybe you saw it too, the descendant of a missionary, a missionary who had gone to a South Pacific island, was in this TV documentary, this descendant, a hundred years later, this lovely woman, was going back by plane to this South Pacific island uh, to see what had the effect of her ancestor had been. And she went, determined to apologize. Her way of thinking about things was all cultures are just as good as each other. There's no way of judging anything better than anything else. And uh, my ancestor came and imposed Christianity on, on you people. 
and, you know, ruined your traditional culture. And she went intending to get off the plane, get on the beach and say, I'm sorry. Uh, on arrival, the beach was filled with people singing and dancing to welcome her. And she thought that was nice. And then they said to her, we're so glad that you have come. It's such an honor to us that the descendant of the person who brought us the gospel about Jesus would come and visit us. Before your ancestor came, we were cannibals. We used to eat each other, but we don't do it anymore because the light of the gospel has come to us. She was a little bit confused <laughs> as to what, what do you say then? I'm, I'm sorry, I was looking forward to eating one of your legs. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's conf- you end up in a silly, silly place from the confusion of pluralism. And as somebody sang or read earlier, in Isaiah 55, it says, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now, Jesus loves us, and because of that love, he loves to step into our reality. He loves to answer the prayers that we feel like praying. He does that, but then having stepped into our reality, he calls us into his reality. He says, if only you could see things with the eyes of heaven. (laughs) Things look very different from up here. There is a realm of revelation in which our confusion dispelled And Jesus invites us up into it. He wants to lift us higher. He wants us to be able to think as he thinks. There are many things that we think are impossible, but God knows how to do them. There are many things that we can't imagine changing, but God's imagination is far stronger and he sees the way right through. Jesus says... Come follow me. Lay down your human thinking. Accept my teaching. Come follow me. Onwards and upwards. This gift of life is a gift for those who can't see the wood for the trees. It's the gift of life. It's a gift of life for Jaded materialists. Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. Presumably he couldn't get an O-level in English either. Uh, his grammar's a bit poor. Um, this world is not satisfying. It just isn't. You can have all the gastronomic delights, pleasures of the flesh, all that money can buy but it leaves the palate jaded, looking for something else instead that would be better and take us further. Many people have searched for treasure and pleasure and have ended up disappointed, having lost all sense of taste. We see books on the shelves, don't we? 
entitled, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die, encouraging us to think that self-indulgence, stimulation and sensation will bring us joy. But they don't. There is another realm. There is another way. In this world, nothing of value ever lasts. Even if you take it to your deathbed, you can't take it with you. Jesus says, in my kingdom, there is no rust to destroy precious things. What's of value in the kingdom of God lasts forever. In this world, it feels like serving other people will rob us of life. Jesus taught that faithfulness with what we've been given is what leads to joy. That following him, serving him, which means sacrifice, including the sacrifice of our possessions, that's what leads to joy. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the Christ figure in the parable says to those who have been faithful come and share my joy. That word is spoken to those who have served faithfully. Jesus invites us to give up what we can't keep in order to gain what we can't lose. Jesus says, lay down your possessions. Lay down your spare time. Lay down the boundaries that you've placed around your life for your own defence, come follow me, onwards and upwards. This is a gift. It's a gift of life to those who are disappointed with the best that the world can offer. Pluralist, materialist, cynical. Um, This is Damon Oldman, who's a little bit younger. It's 20 years now since Damon Alban, with the band Blur, first sang, I'm a professional cynic, but my heart's not in it. Uh, But that mood has not passed on from society. That tongue-in-cheek cynicism, that knowing cynicism that says, I'm a cynic and I know it and I don't care, that still describes the society that we live in. Jesus sees things rather differently. Because the cynic can't imagine change that matters. Jesus says, you can be like me. You can be perfect like I and my heavenly father are perfect. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says it as a command, doesn't he? You be perfect like my father's perfect. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Jesus knows how to get you there, and he's determined to do so. Jesus invites us to be like him. He is the happy, loving, servant king of the world. And he believes that we can change. That's because he promises to be the one who will change us, and he knows how to do it. Here's a story, slightly abridged from 
guy called Walter Wengerin. Some of you may have heard it before. It bears retelling. The story goes like this. Before dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes that were bright and new, and he was calling in a clear voice, Rags! The air was foul, and the first light was filthy, but this was sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now, this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? Soon, the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch, and she was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing, shedding a thousand tears. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman. Give me your rag, he said ever so gently, I'll give you another. And he slipped the handkerchief from her eyes, and she looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined, and she blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, And then he began to weep, his shoulders shaking. She was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman. Rags! New rags for old! In a little while, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage whose eyes were empty, blood soaked her bandage, and a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Give me your rag, he said, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him whilst he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head, and he placed on hers a lovely yellow bonnet. With the bandage went the wound, and against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags! I take old rags! cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. You going to work? he asked a man who leaned against a telephone pole. The man shook his head. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, with the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket, and I'll give you mine. 
The one-armed man took off his jacket, and so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket. And he took that blanket and wrapped it round himself. But for the drunk, he left new clothes. So here was the ragman pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick. And yet in his wake, he left joy, healing, purpose, and a sound mind. This is our God. This is not only what he's like, this is what he's done. We've looked in this series at how his death on the cross frees us up to receive all of these benefits as he paid a price in our place. Jesus says, give me your dirty rags. Now, these rags are not just the wounds that others have inflicted on us. They're not just the things that have been done to us. The fact is that as sinful people, we have all formed attachments to ugly things. And we're hesitant to let them go. We've all formed attachments to ugly things. And we're hesitant to let them go. Jesus says, give me your dirty rags. Lay down your sin. Come, follow me. Onwards and upwards. This is a gift. It is a gift of life to those who despair of genuine change. Jesus deals only in genuine change. So where does that leave us this morning? The gift of following Jesus. Well, we're going to break bread together. Before Jesus died, he broke bread and shared a cup of wine with his followers. And he said to them, do this to remember me. They did it to remember his death. And we're going to break bread and share that cup this morning. We're going to remember that Jesus died, we're going to remember particularly that he died in part to show us the way. Not only to do something for us and to us, but to show us the way so that we might follow him through death to new life. Hebrews 12 again. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this morning, this is where we are. We are invited to go further than we've gone before. We're invited to share in the death of Jesus so that we might also share in his life. And I'm just going to pause and pray that God would highlight to us what are the dirty rags that have found a place in our hearts that he wants to replace with something far better.